This is exactly right. As a parent, just like you want your children to try different vegetables, you as a parent have to try games and see which ones you like. But I think my main message is we have to be a little more relaxed. Kids are actually quite sturdy emotionally, physically, and they will be resilient and we don't have to be the perfect parent. Nobody is asking for perfect parenting. Your kids aren't asking for it. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, You could be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is A-plus parenting with Eva Moskowitz. Eva earned a PhD in American history from John Hopkins University, and after teaching at several universities, she entered politics and became a member of the New York City Council, where she became chair of the council's education committee which oversees the city's public school system. After leaving the council, Ava founded Harlem Success Academy with 165 students. And in the years that followed, she turned Success Academy charter schools into one of the fastest growing, highest performing public charter school networks in the nation with more than 50 schools enrolling over 20,000 students. Success's students regularly outperform students from New York's most affluent neighborhoods and go on to attend leading universities. Eva has shared her expertise with thousands of educators and visitors from around the world, testified before Congress, and worked with political leaders from both parties to advance educational reform. Her memoir, The Education of Eva Moskowitz, details her relentless efforts to advance educational equity. She and her husband, Eric Granis, are the authors of their new book, which we will be talking about today, A-Plus Parenting, The Surprisingly Fun Guide to Raising Surprisingly Smart Kids. They have three young adult children who love to learn. Eva, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for that lovely introduction. There is so much there, and of course, I cut stuff out, right? There was so much, there's so much to talk about, and... Um, I, there's so many directions I want to go. We're going to talk about your journey, but I guess I, I want to start by just letting everyone know what you and your team have accomplished since 2006. And to let everyone know that when, when you started this, your school, your first school, 73% of the students were eligible for free or reduced price lunch. And most of them came from a school district in Harlem, where only one in five eighth graders read at grade level and only one in a hundred gained admission to a four-year college. And here you are writing the book with your husband 16 years later and 
at this time, 96% of your eighth graders are at or above grade level in reading. 93% are at or above grade level in math. And 100%, everyone, 100% of your high school graduates have been admitted to four-year colleges. And this has been replicated across 50 schools serving more than 20,000 students. That's incredible. Uh, it has been hard, uh, but incredibly rewarding. Uh, and I think it really stems uh, from just an absolute faith that children can. Mm -hmm. uh, if we give them the right tools and an environment that is both intellectually engaging, but also gives children the guidance that they need to form the habits of mind that lead to success. Mm -hmm. And as you point out in the book, there's so much time. Kids are in school so, so much of their hours in a year, and they are at home so much of their hours in school. Like both, both matter tremendously. And what I think about in terms of the adversity that kids face just in life outside of school, outside of your enriched environment, um, at a micro level, at a macro level. And yet the programs and the mentoring and the environment that you all have provided have still kept these kids marching on in their academics, in their intellectual pursuits. And as you point out, it's so much more than it's so much more than grades. It's it's the love of learning and and engaging in their life. Yeah, and some uh, some of the engagement is really non-academic. We really, really believe that um, chess, for example, we have eleven thousand kids playing chess. And we think that is as important as the academic subjects. And in fact, the intellectual discipline and focus you learn through chess may be more important than the academic subjects. We really think that dance and debate and having coding teams and math teams, all of that that might be considered extracurricular, mm -hmm. for us, it's not extra. It's co Mm -hmm. It's fundamentally important to be a successful human being is to have passions and to be able to engage in that level of self-expression. And that also seems to be uh, a, a large portion of your magic recipe, the magic sauce of equity, right? Leveling, leveling that playing field where is commonly more affluent families have more resources and ability to both pay and get their kids to all of these activities. And you, by design, built it into your program. Yes. And equity animates uh, the work that we do. How do you ensure that there are not um, the educational haves and have nots mm -hmm. uh, and that is um, inclusive of obviously co-curricular activity, mm -hmm. but it's also, you know, the 
social and emotional work that we do with students. Every one of our schools has a social and emotional learning specialist Mm -hmm. or a clinical psychologist. Most affluent families, if their child is struggling, wouldn't um, think twice about having them see a therapist or work through certain issues, whereas poor kids are sort of um, left Mm-hmm. Uh, to their own devices. And at certain times throughout the 13 years of continuous education, most kids, affluent or not, get stuck in some way. Mm-hmm. And they need a way to kind of work through whatever fears, anxieties, challenges they're experiencing. And so we as a school system, provide that level of support. All of our kids, middle through high school, also have advisors. And we think the advisory model is really, really important. Those are mentors. Mm -hmm. Those are advocates. That's a space um, once a day where kids in a smaller group get guidance from an adult. Once a day. I mean, that's phenomenal. And we all know you know, the research time and time again, that the mentoring model is just so powerful when it's uh, delivered consistent, consistently and regularly in uh, with these young minds. So now let's take a step back. So professorhood is in your family. And that that that, that was the path. And you, you were a professor. And then you ended up on the, as the chair of the educational um, council, educational committee. How profound was that experience in changing your trajectory? Or was this always brewing in the background? Uh, No, no. I uh, set out to be an academic and I loved uh, teaching. Uh, and I had a number of great experiences teaching undergrads, graduate students. Um, but the life of the mind, um, I guess for me, was missing some of the practical implications. I, I always wanted to solve problems. And I was, based on my own K-12 educational experience, Um, was very disheartened that the schools in New York City and, frankly, America were not better. Uh, There was a time in our history where people came from all over the world for our K-12 education system. They still come for higher ed, but um, most people, when they come to America as immigrants are a little disappointed that the Mm -hmm. school systems are often quite broken. Um, And so that was a problem that um, kind of um, nagged at me. I I just thought um, it it couldn't be that hard since we had a world-class K-12 system at one point. Couldn't we Um, have one again. And that was before I became a mother. I ran for the first time in 1997. And then my eldest son was born in 1998. And when I won in 1999, at that point, I was a parent. 
Um, but I just thought, why should parents have to angst so much about finding a good elementary? And even if they found a good elementary, why did they then have to angst so much about finding a middle school? And then if they did that, then there was the high school question. Mm -hmm. And so I um, tried to improve the system from within. I used my gavel and power of subpoena um, to run. I held actually 125 hearings on everything from science education to arts education to procurement um, to um, the capital budget of the school system, trying to make it better Mm -hmm. for children and families. And while I had some modest success at making it better, I really came to the conclusion that it was really hard to fix a broken system. Mm. And could I, instead of fixing a broken system, could I create an alternative that got closer to educational nirvana Mm -hmm. than what existed? And so, as you mentioned, I opened our first school in Harlem, where uh, I grew up. Uh, actually on 118th Street uh, and Lenox, which is the block I grew up on, as just luck would have it. And I opened our doors to 165 kindergartners and first graders. I was the first principal. Those first graders and kindergartners just graduated from college (laughs) uh, this past year. Amazing. Uh, And... Uh, today, we have 53 schools, over 20,000 kids. Yeah, so impressive. Um, having been a part of several different iterations of schools, and I have to say, having been fortunately not in charge of the school, so all the respect to you and your team. I mean, it is so complex to start a school, to sustain a school, to everything from the staffing to the curriculum to the environment, all of that, which you know well, um, to start with 165 students. I mean, just for every, all the listeners, that in and of itself, when you're launching a school, is tremendous. Most Many micro schools or beginning schools, you know, they, they start with 20, they start with 10, they start with 15. So how, what was the process of launching a, a, an entire program? Yeah, it was uh, it was challenging. I mean, I had to go door to door to recruit students and imagine recruiting students and families and saying, OK, I've never run a school before. Uh, I don't have a building yet, um, <laughs> but it's going to be a fantastic school where we're going to have science five days a week starting in kindergarten. And your kids are going to play soccer and have art and music and dance. Um you know, it was challenging. I actually did home visits to the 165 kindergartners and first graders. I, of course, had a very tiny staff because I didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, managing all that. And I, you know, I joke with our founding families that, you know, it wasn't sort of as good as I wanted it to be three months in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I worked very, very hard to make it better every day. Uh, And I really spent a lot of time building relationships with kids and families. Mm -hmm. 
and um, making the building as aesthetically pleasing and well-maintained mm -hmm. as possible. I hired really smart, loving teachers mm -hmm. who were young and in inexperienced, but very committed to being learners themselves. Mm -hmm. We um, opened our doors and every kid learned how to play chess in starting in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And by third grade, those kids were winning state and national championships. Incredible. You're making me think of what you said you hired, um, I'm paraphrasing, uh, smart, kind teachers. And uh, I remember one of Malcolm Gladwell's books when he was interviewing a former CEO, like, how, how do you, how do you guys hire such nice, friendly people? And he said, we look for nice, friendly people, <laughs> right? Like I, and I know that, you know, you, over time you've become really astute and adept at locating who is the kind of a success Academy teacher that you're looking for. Yeah. And, and look, it's, it's not, um, it's not a, perfect science by any means. But um, I think because we're known for our academic rigor, mm -hmm. and that is really important to us, um, we, uh, people may not know that uh, building relationships with kids and building a warm, kind classroom community mm -hmm. is as important, if not more important, Mm -hmm. than the academic rigor. Because yes. if you don't have that community, if teachers are not um, respected and loved by the students, it's really hard to learn. And it is not, um, it is not a joyful experience. So right. we're very careful about tone and respect and how do you build. Um, we always joke a little bit that um, the best teachers know that God forbid something happened, all the kids would come to their funeral mm. because they are so well loved and respected. Mm -hmm. If the kids have an I don't care attitude, that is not a good sign. It means that the teacher has not invested the kids in her leadership or his leadership and the teacher has not created a community where kids can have those really strong, trusting relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. Relationship is virtually everything in most aspects of life. So I was, in, I was intrigued by the title, having read your book now, and those listeners who are going to go out and read your book, A Plus Parenting. You've used the word academic rigor, a few times. And I think it's important for us to demystify and break down the difference between academic rigor and grades. Because when you, when I read your book and learn about your approach to not only education, but to, um, to parenting, which we will talk about how they dovetail so nicely. It's not about the grades at like the, I got the sense, like, it's not about the grades at all. And it's a catchy title about how to be your best as a parent. Yeah. I mean, what I'm going for in parenting, but also in schooling is um, supporting intellectually vibrant children. Mm -hmm. um, now, I do believe that intellectually vibrant children also happen to do well on tests. Right. 
But the goal is um, to select uh, a poem that is going to inspire or make kids laugh or make kids think critically about the world around them. And so Mm -hmm. we, in our, as uh, the educational leader of success, you know, I very, very carefully curate the content, um, the particular math problems we put in front of kids, the poetry selection we put Mm -hmm. in front of kids. If they're older, it's the historical sources that we put in front of kids. It's the scientific experiments that we put in front of kids. And we have kind of a bunch of goals there. First, we want kids to fall in love with school and fall in love with learning. Mm -hmm. And that requires catering to their tastes and interests. Mm. Uh, And in that sense, our content is very Mm -hmm. child-centric. It is not you know, it's not about the grades. We're not shy about being a high performance organization and culture, but the purpose of the school design, and certainly as a parent, my role was not focused on the grades, but I was focused on ensuring that my three kids love to learn, mm-hmm. love to debate, love to hear from people who disagreed with their point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, kids who love to uh, compete and play games, uh, but um, they win or they learn. And those are sort of the options. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and learning being at the center of their upbringing, and in the case of schooling, schooling um, actually creates a very different vibe and a different set of outcomes. Absolutely. Drawing on the research from Challenge Success out of, out of Stanford, um, sharing part of your name, um, is that one of the number one predictors of child adjustment is engagement in school. And it sounds like that is like what what you guys have your eye on and your commitment on is to have kids engaged in school. And we have this epidemic we've had for too long now of overly stressed out kids who don't sleep much. They pack their schedules, um, pack their AP classes, all this extracurricular with the goal of getting into an elite school, which is driven by a GPA and a resume looking a certain way. And that's to me like, this is that front door that I think that people are going through and what you're describing, and it might be the opposite actually of the doors, but this back door, which is when you have a child engaged in learning, expanding their intellectual pursuits, their social emotional um, being, um, being well-rounded, almost like this more of the old Renaissance education, that you have someone that the byproduct is engagement, which results in a good GPA, but that's not, the goal is not the good GPA. The goal is all of the other elements that you're describing. Yeah, I, uh, that is exactly right. I also think, uh, you know, high school in particular can be so focused on college admissions 
that you don't give the kids the best four years of their lives. Mm -hmm. So our view is we call our high school uh, the high school of liberal arts in the Renaissance fashion of the word. Ah. We want the kids um, broadly mm -hmm. to be learned mm -hmm. in history, in poetry, in science and mathematics, in economics, in art history. So it's a pretty broad education. Um, we also want them um, to join a rock band and uh, to code and to find the passions that animate them. Mm -hmm. um, we, we like kids to do things um, in depth, meaning when you're discovering your passions, we don't want you to spend six months in a rock band, six months at chess, six months you really need to learn how to sustain. You can switch, but we want you then to do the next thing with a level of gusto and dedication. And um, we find that when we do that, first of all, the kids are happier, which is very important to us. Mm -hmm. But we've had 100% of our kids admitted to four-year colleges and about 60 or 70% admitted to highly selective colleges at that um, with financial aid um, because they're well-rounded mm -hmm. and they're passionate learners mm -hmm. and they've had resilience um, both inside the classroom and outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think for the long-term success you really want children to learn the habits of mind that are both going to be satisfying to them. And for that, you need intrinsic motivation. Right. Right. So right. if you think of um, your students or your children and you're really playing the long game, you want them to be happy, well-adjusted adults who, to be sure, can earn a living and support themselves. Um but I think you go at the parenting or you go at the schooling differently if you're thinking about uh, life more broadly. Let's turn the page to parenting, um, which you spend many pages on in your book. And... Uh, I'm going to quote you here. The most important thing is to bring love, joy, and enthusiasm to your parenting. The more you do so, the more your children will learn to appreciate intellectual pursuits and become lifelong learners. So at some point, it came together for you, right? Like what you're doing, uh, because as parents, you know, we're with our first, we, we're, 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 we're making it up. We're doing what our parents did or we're doing the opposites of what our parents did and we're learning. And then you are learning as an educator and um, principal, both business owner and principal of a school. How did it start to dovetail as your kids were getting older in terms of this philosophy that you outline with your husband in the book? Well, I would just say, um, I think the philosophy is, is, is kind of important. So maybe I could just spend 30 seconds on that. I think parenting can be this self-sacrificing 
thing that you give, give, give to your children. And of course, on some existential level, that is true. But Eric and I took the approach that we wanted to enjoy parenting, perhaps selfishly, (laughs) um, but we thought it should be enjoyable for us and our children Mm -hmm. and not sort of a drag. And part of the reason we played so many games or um, had dinner table conversations uh, very aptly about peace in the Middle East is because we were interested in those topics. And we found that you didn't have to kind of shut down your life as an adult and sort of redirect it just to children. You could actually bring your children into your adult life and um, they actually respond. They're interested in peace in the Middle East. They're interested in how do you solve um, the challenges of public education or poverty. They're interested in uh, games that might be slightly above, you know, I, we had three children that were, um, my oldest and my youngest was six years apart. And so we couldn't just do the baby things or do the things that the 10 year old was interested. Everybody had to be agile. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so we were, um, stretching our younger ones. Sometimes we were stretching the patience of our older one. Um, But we, my husband and I did all the things in the book. I don't think we were that deliberate about it. We didn't totally realize we had a philosophy. Yeah, We just sort of did it. And it wasn't until Eric and I became empty nesters two years ago. And we said, Oh, we actually do have a philosophy, mm-hmm. and it um, it kind of got into the school, and the schools affected my parenting. Uh, it was um, synergistic, mm-hmm. uh, and so we didn't want to wait too long to write the book because we thought we would forget it all, and we also thought, um, you know, when I looked at the books on parenting. There are a lot of books on toileting and tantruming and Mm -hmm. all these different subjects. But to me, one of the most important responsibilities you have as a parent is to raise your child intellectually. And there was no book Mm -hmm. on that topic. So we decided to write one. Well, and validating that for um, it is I have not read a book like that, that really integrates the parenting piece and the intellectual development of your child for the purpose of a a lifelong learner and ultimately a life well lived, right? So I I really think you guys put that together in a way where um, there are so, it's, it's clear, like the passion and the intention is clear, of course, in your writing. And what I'm hearing is it was clear as you were parenting, but you weren't able to really see the philosophy as, as it is now expressed until looking back and writing, like it it was there, but it wasn't something that you just, that you sat down to say, this is going to be our parenting philosophy. We're going to do this. It just evolved over time. Yeah. And, you know, I was working uh, many, many hours Mm -hmm. uh, standing up the school's So um, I didn't have that much time to really 
think. Flex <laughs> on um, parenting. I was trying yes. to eat out as much time as I could with the kids. Um, I also think it's written, uh, it's not a philosophical book. It's a very mm-hmm. practical yes. how-to. Yes. Um, and you don't, as a parent, sometimes I think uh, people look at it and they're, oh my God, there are so many activities, there are so many things. You don't have to, this is not a coverage exercise. Mm-hmm. You don't have to cover. You need to, as a parent, look through the book and figure out, is parlor games your thing or board games? Uh, is, um, you know, uh, listening to stories out loud is dinner table conversation. How do you feel about logic games? Mm -hmm. Is that your thing? And it's partly your thing as a parent, but it's also what interests your kids. Mm -hmm. Um, My middle child is now studying mathematics at the university of Chicago. And from an very early age, when we did logic puzzles with him, he was the most interested and would, you know, not want to go on to another mm-hmm. <laughs> topic. My other two, uh, they participated, but they didn't have the kind of obsession uh, that he had. My older one uh, took to bridge very early on. And so, you know, not every child has this, even in one family has the same interests Mm -hmm. and you've got to have that Venn diagram of what you as a parent are interested in and what the family is going to be interested in. And then what individual children. So my husband might play bridge with my older one while I played connect four with the little one Mm -hmm. and kind of, um, um, but games, I think, are way more invaluable intellectually than most parents realize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talk about parental inadequacy syndrome, which I think is another is, is has spread across our country. <laughs> Tell everyone what you've learned about this this syndrome. Well, it's just very easy uh, to feel if you're a working parent or have crazy hours that you're inadequate because of time. You can also feel that, um, you know, I didn't uh, learn uh, science this way and now I'm not equipped to teach my child science or... um, you know, you can feel your children are struggling emotionally and you don't know um, what is the best way forward. And you can feel that it is, um, you know, you're treading water as a parent instead of feeling confident and, and good. And I just want to put a little less pressure on parents I think you are who you are. You have, you've got the education you've gotten. And what can you do that you are going to enjoy doing with your child and that is going to be useful? I wouldn't mm-hmm. sort of think about hours clocked with your kids. I wouldn't think about, um, you know, some parents 
are better at things than other parents. Mm-hmm. If baking is your thing, that is a wonderful activity to do with children. Mm-hmm. Um, if parlor games, and as a parent, just like you want your children to try different vegetables, you as a parent have to try games and see which ones you like. But I think my main message is we have to be a little more relaxed. Kids are actually quite sturdy emotionally, physically, Mm -hmm. and they will be resilient and we don't have to be the perfect parent. Right. Nobody is asking for perfect parenting. Your kids aren't asking for it. No, it just... It, 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 in a lot of communities it, and, and through social media, there is a lot of pressure on parents these days to, to do that, to do everything. I mean, to do literally everything and produce this outcome, which then becomes a reflection of oneself and, and all of the worry that goes into that. Um, I, speaking of worry, I liked what you said um, in the book. If you're worried about whether you're doing enough for your children, then you're probably already doing a lot for them. Right. Like the people who are worried about it are these conscientious people who are really doing their best. Um, And for those of you who don't worry about it, we all want to be you. Right. Like it's like it's that's a gift to not have to worry in that way these days. Yes. Couldn't couldn't agree more. And look, I'm not speaking from a place of, um, you know, I um, had no angst or I had I, I, in fact, you know, I felt I'm torn between my work and other people's children and my own children. Was I giving too much to other people's children and not enough to my own? And um, it's not as if I um, had no um, challenges in this area, but I think I learned to have a level of equanimity uh, mm-hmm. about it uh, and I just don't want parents to kind of beat themselves up right. um, over and over again. They have the time they do. Um, you know, it's important in parenting to get a good night's sleep yes. and eat well and yes. exercise and do all of the things that give us energy and optimism. Yeah. And you can get kind of down on yourself as a parent. And I'm, I'm just trying to avoid that. You're right. You triggered, you just triggered a, a memory, a parenting memory of mine with the work life uh, conundrum. And when our kids were younger and it was a, it was a very busy time at work and I was seeing lots of clients and then clients, you know, or there were crises that happen. And then I would call home and say, Hey, I'm going to be home a few hours later. I got this client and I have to get in and my wife who's a hundred percent supportive of the practice and has been integral as part of building the practice over the years. There was this one period of time and I'll never forget. She said to me when I said, well, these kids, uh, sorry, the, these kids need me. And she said something like, what about your kids? What about us needing you? And oh man, did that pierce. And it was it was so true. And you, and then, but this dilemma when, and I, and I know you can relate because of your, I know the commitment it takes to achieve what you have achieved in your school and schools. It takes a lot of time and a lot of, um, 
a lot of spontaneity, like you have to react and adjust to many different things while also have this focus on your own family. And, um, that's, that's tough. Yeah, it, it was, um, challenging. Uh, I too have a very supportive, uh, uh, spouse who made it, uh, easier. Um, but you just feel conflicted mm -hmm. um, much of the time. Yeah. And so um, that's why I think it's so important to enjoy parenting. Because if parenting mm -hmm. becomes another job right. Right. <laughs> and you've got a job, uh, it, you know, it just becomes, I think you always feel um, that your gas tank is sort of half empty instead of mm -hmm. full. Yes. And working hard and working passionately is also modeling those, those characteristics for your kids. Like there, there, there's so many sides of this, right? Like there's just so, this is not a black and white thing. So there's upsides and sometimes there's potential downsides. But as you point out, it doesn't mean it's a downside for the kid necessarily. If they're fulfilled in their life and they're involved in what they're doing and they have another parent or caretaker around them, you know, I think sometimes we think we're, we're being missed more than we are. And that's when we're being hard on ourselves. Yes, <laughs> so true. So this connection, what have you found with this connection between the joy of learning and the joy in living? Well, I just think uh, when you have an intellectual life, uh, it is unbelievably pleasurable, meaning... Um, when you love to read, for example, uh, getting the opportunity to read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and get into the mind of a great um, literary figure who wrote hundreds of years ago, that, that pleasure in reading um, is really sustaining. And of course, um, it's important to be well-rounded. So you read and uh, you spend time with uh, people you love and like. Um, but I think that intellectual life is underrated in terms of the pleasure and meaningfulness of life that it can give you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I read voraciously, not only fiction and nonfiction, but I, I read four or five newspapers a day. Uh, and, you know, I'm trying to understand, unfortunately, the state of the world, yeah. which is not seeming uh, a very, uh, it can leave one a little um, uh, dispirited. Yes. Uh, but, um, you know, being an active citizen of the world, I think, is part of what makes life worth living and and then being connected to people who are also reading and wrestling with um, the challenges of the world, I think is, to me, it's part of the zest of life. Yes. 
I, uh, I have to say this, um, the, the quote that you quoted, um, <laughs> so it's so funny and on point by uh, science educator, Neil deGrasse Tyson, because obviously it's the antithesis of what you believe in, in your parenting and in your education. This, the quote is, we spend the first year teaching them to walk and talk and the rest of their lives telling them to shut up and sit down. <laughs> oh, man. Right. Like when it when it when it's said that way. It's like, gosh, you got adults. What are we doing? What are we doing? Whether we're parenting or whether we're educators or coaches or mentors. Like, what are we doing? We're cheering for them to grow. And then we inadvertently or consciously start to limit them and tell them what to do. And how do how do you see that in both? your parenting and educating? Well, in educating, uh, we, our whole school design is built around uh, teaching kids not what to think, but how to think critically Mm -hmm. about whatever text problems sources that they are encountering how to what are the best questions to ask about phenomenon uh or a poem um and so it's really the school design is geared toward um raising children who question and probe and think in a surround sound kind of way about issues and topics. And I think that is pretty fundamentally different than most school systems, Mm -hmm. uh, which are perhaps more of the uh, Neil deGrasse, um, you know, spoon feeding or, um, uh, you know, eliminating uh, the creative thought process. In terms of parenting, um, you know, I would say the same applies, um, but also wanting kids to um, also understand themselves and what they find pleasurable and inspiring um, And so um, that requires giving kids license to make choices about their interests and also to be somewhat experimental because when they're young, they don't know um, what what they're really, what's really going to engage them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interest and in, follow their interests, not your interests. <laughs> and they might overlap, but, but having that awareness as a parent that this isn't about us, this is about them and their life and their path and how we can cultivate and support their passions, their interests, their risk-taking, right? Like their, their, their lives, 
and where and I, they're going. Yeah, and I think it's not only risk taking and not imposing your your will on them, although guiding them, but I also think it's it's being attuned to, um, you know, if your kid you know, you think your kid might like bridge and you try it and they have a reaction, you have to be attuned to that. Mm -hmm. Um, whether the reaction is positive or negative. Uh, and I think sometimes parents are so activity driven that they don't stop to listen to the kid. Well, what are they telling you about their level of investment? Mm -hmm. And even asking, stopping to ask, well, what did you like about that? Or what didn't you like about that? And being a little bit poker faced in terms, even if you think the kid should or might, you know, giving them the space to tell you what was enjoyable about that, almost to work the muscle of you should have a point of view on the activity and why you liked it and what about it was really fun or engaging. And Eric and I, I think, always gave the kids the space to um, kind of give us the voiceover of their experience of a particular activity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you hope readers get from your book? If there was like one main message, because there is there is a lot in there, and I just want to reiterate what you've said and also what you said at the beginning of the book. This is not a you have to do all of this. This is you, just is all for your choosing, for you to think about, give you ideas um, within your philosophy. So there's a lot in there. What, what distilling this to one, if there is one main point, what would you say it is? Um, well, I almost called the book The Joy of Parenting mm. because I, I really am very passionate about you enjoying the experience. I can't, I can't emphasize enough that if it's stressful, a checklist, um, first of all, your kids know. And so finding the things that you truly enjoy uh, is important. And I would say the second thing is I wouldn't assume that the school is taking care of the intellectual development of your child. I would take that on yourself a little more because, um, you know, school can be a sort of a mass experience there, you know, the, the institution has many objectives and I wouldn't just kind of give that over to the school. I think parents need to, steward the intellectual development of their kid, even if the school is good and plays an important role, I wouldn't hand that over. Mm-hmm. I would make sure to take the reins yourself. Okay, Eva. We must transition to the parent footprint moment question. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. Uh, well, there are so many uh, uh, moments, uh, but uh, choosing one, I think, uh, is the time that my eldest son uh, uh, had 
believe it or not, had never visited uh, my schools. <laughs> and I didn't want to, you know, impose. He was a teenager. He had his own life. He had a teenager. Uh, and mind you, I spent some portion of my time uh, as a parent feeling very guilty about the amount of time I was spending at work and raising him and his siblings and so forth. So out of the blue, he calls me on a, on my cell phone and says, mom, could I come visit your schools? And I said, of course. And I literally m met him at the school like an hour later. And I took him through the school. I didn't really say anything. And he was in tears mm. and said, mom, this is so incredible. I had no idea. Mm. And uh, he was so proud of me. And it was, he was at this point 17 and I had been doing this for quite a few years. And it made me realize that, you know, my guilt and, um, you know, it was sort of unnecessary. Yeah. He didn't feel that way. Uh, and when he saw the school for the, for the first time, uh, he was really, really proud. And I never thought, you know, I had spent all these years being proud of him. I never anticipated how much it meant to me that he was proud of me. I had sort of not even considered when that moment would occur, mm -hmm. if it would occur. And it was, um, mm. you know, really a great feeling that he understood why um, building really great schools for poor kids and equity was so, so important mm -hmm. that I would um, occasionally miss his basketball game or something of import. Uh, so that that's my moment. Wow. So validating. That's like so validating and also exemplifies what we were just talking about earlier about how the modeling, right? Like what he, seeing you work hard and becoming to a place in his life of maturation and looking out and then wanting to understand and be involved as, as this older young adult and to be able to reflect back to you, um, his, like his feeling for you, him being proud of you, right? We always think about it, like you said, of us being proud of our kids and how important that is, but man, we need that too. <laughs> we need exactly. that. Back. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing. Of course. Eva, thank you for uh, for 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 sharing your your story with us. And again, I just have to say, it's so um, impressive and inspirational um, what you and your team have done to change the lives of over twenty thousand plus students and counting. I mean, it, the trajectories of their lives and what they will be passing down to their children and impacting their communities is just profound. The ripple effects will be profound. Well, thank you for having me. I, I so appreciate you and uh, our conversation and this topic. Tell everyone where they can get this wonderful book. Well, they can get it on Amazon. Of course. Uh, it's A Plus Parenting. And I should say that all of the proceeds go to Success Academy. Oh, wonderful. So this is just um, really... Uh, it's not 
I'm, I'm not doing it for any other reason than uh, to share some tips uh, and to help success. To share wisdom, your hard-earned wisdom, yours and your husband's. Thank you for listening, everyone. Please share this with everyone you know who will benefit. Thank you for being a part of our community. And also thank you for bringing your wonderful people into our community. We so appreciate your support, your five-star reviews. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. Try to be that person that you want your child to become. And ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.